Good morning, FBN. There we go. If you have your Bibles, grab those and turn them right to Ephesians 4 where the video told you. I'm going to invite Cindy Cutter up now. She's going to read our passage today. It's going to be Ephesians 4, 17 through 21. I want you to grab your Bibles and be able to follow along uh, with what we're talking about today so you see it's not my opinion. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a blue one near you um, and, and helpful for you. I already looked it up. It's on page 816. So um, grab it, turn to page 816 and join us there in Ephesians 4. And if you're physically capable, would you stand with us as Cindy reads today's passage? Good morning. Um, the instructions is from God, the instructions of a Christian living. So I tell you this, I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of the life you learned when you heard about Christ and you were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus Christ. Thank, Thank you. you, Cindy. You join me in a word of prayer. God, these are your people. This has already been a full, busy day here at FBN, one that you've reigned supreme over, and we thank you for each and every aspect of that, and we give you praise. But God, we ask now that as we turn your attention to your word, and specifically Ephesians chapter 4, Lord, that you would use uh, the power of your word, you would use the, the encouragement, conviction, exhortation of your Holy Spirit to just uh, reign supreme over this time, that you would speak the things that you want to, you want to speak, that we would hear them and respond to them humbly, and you would shove everything else, including me, out of the way. And we ask this all in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. You can have a seat. So Karina and I moved here to Terre Haute back in 2010. A uh, full nine years ago, and at that time we had one child. Oh, life was so simple. <laughs> right? And I remember, one of, the, one of the things that I remember about having one child is that you can invest all your time and all your energy and all your attention into that child. Right? And so uh, when we moved here, Hattie was one. Um, and so she was going through some of those development stages that you expect a one to two year old to go through. She was learning to walk. She was learning to climb things. She was learning stairs. And so since I could devote all my attention to her, I, I, I kind of walked her through each of those. And I kept repeating a phrase to her over and over and over again. Hattie, don't be afraid because if you fall, daddy will catch you. All right. Now we got four kids, twin one year olds. And so I sit down each of them and say, listen, don't be afraid. But if you fall, it will hurt. Because I don't have eight arms, right? Please don't break something. I don't want an emergency room bill. That's the conversation we have now. But back then, it was Daddy Will Catch You, right? So there was one day I was here at church working, and, and um, Hattie decided she wanted to go down to our basement uh, as a one-year-old. And so she's going down these set of stairs that are pretty steep. And her mother, uh, being a loving mother, saw this as kind of, this is kind of concerning. So she said, Hattie, wait, wait, just slow down and be careful. And you know what Hattie said to her? Don't worry. If I fall, Daddy will catch me. It's adorable, right? Now she's 10, okay, which means she's got one year and then she's going to middle school. Now she questions pretty much everything that comes out of my mouth, which is why Jesus said, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must become like a little children. He did not say, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must become a preteen. He knew better, right? 
So I tell you this, I love you, Hattie, right? I see you over there. Right? I tell you this, this story to point this out, right? Corinne and Hattie saw that experience, the same exact experience, but they saw it differently. Right? They didn't see different things. They didn't experience different things. How they perceived them was the opposite. To Corinne, this was something dangerous. This was something threatened. This is something that we should take care, careful attention to. Hattie, it was just a path of safety and security. And it's incredibly rare that, that people see two different things. You get that, right? If, if, if you're standing outside and one of you, you're looking at an animal and one of you says, that's a frog, and the other says, no, that's a giraffe, then what I know is one of you needs an MRI. Okay, there's something going on there, okay? But it happens all the time that two people see the exact same things differently. So last night, for instance, we got home after a wedding last night, and I was cleaning up the living room, the kitchen, and, and just, to, just to have some background noise, I turned on the Cubs-Cardinals game, and there was one shot of the crowd that was about 50% red shirts and 50% blue shirts. Right, now, you wouldn't expect this at a football game. Right? You don't go to a Colts game and see a lot of Patriots jerseys, but this is baseball's fault because they play like 10,000 games a year. So it's easy to buy tickets. But everybody in that stadium last night was watching the same game. They're watching the same plays happen. And every time something happened, half the stadium react one way and half the stadium react differently. They weren't seeing different things. They're just reacting differently. We see this in the Gospels all the time. Jesus and, and the religious leaders see the exact same things. But their reactions to them are total polar opposites. Because the difference is not in what we see but it's in how we see it. The difference lies in how our mind perceives things. And so we are going as a church through this book of Ephesians. We're making our way verse by verse. And thus far, uh, we've been in chapter four since Easter. And thus far in chapter four, all of Ephesians chapter four has been about the church. First, Paul wrote about the unity of the church, and then he broke down uh, the design of the church, and then we got into the structure of the church and the purpose of the church. And today, in verse 17, right where Cindy started reading for you, today kind of marks the shift, where Paul has has stopped writing about the design and structure of the church, and now he's going to be writing about the conduct, personal conduct of individual believers, and to this gathering of believers at Ephesus, this, this church that was made up mostly of Gentiles, He starts this section with this thought in verse 17. I tell you this and insist on it, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now in 2019 to us, that that phrase might not make a whole lot of sense. But if if you weren't here when we covered chapter 2, if you've slept this since then, I'm going to remind you of some themes that we've picked up through Ephesians. Because a a big section of chapter 2 taught taught us about how Gentiles, before Jesus Christ, were separated from God, that we had no citizenship in heaven, and that Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, has brought all people who believe in him near, Jew and Gentile alike, that we've all been adopted into God's household, that that he's broken down any dividing wall of hostility that remained between us, and that we are one, his church is one humanity in Jesus. And so with that background, what we know is when Paul writes, no longer live as Gentiles do, what he's writing is this, no longer live as someone who does not know Jesus. And he starts a section by aiming for our character, for our attitudes, for our conduct. But I want you to notice in verse 17, what's the very next phrase he writes? He says, do not live like the Gentiles do, and, and, and then he doesn't get to behavior. What does he say? In the futility of of their thinking. You understand what he's doing there? Paul is equating behavior. He's equating conduct with the state of our mind, which is either 
groundbreaking or totally basic, again, depending on how much you've considered this. But let me, let me just bring this home this morning. Let me ask you, is there any behavior in your life, any habit in your life, any sin that exists in your life that you'd love to be rid of? Maybe one that you've tried and tried and tried, but you just can't seem to break yourself of it. Or do you, have you noticed any sort of harmful patterns that just keep repeating themselves in your life and you just can't seem to pull out of them? Or have you at any point sat in this room or any other room and, and listened to something being taught from the Bible and not be able to, for the life of you, understand why anyone would want to follow that? Well, I'm guessing is everyone in this room can answer yes to at least one of those questions. Well, what if I told you this morning that focusing in on changing your behavior was your problem? That, that in doing that, to focus in on your behavior is attacking the symptoms and not the disease. What if I told you that in order for you to understand the hope of Jesus, you literally need your way of thinking transformed? And what if I told you that there was a God who is ready and willing to work on your real places of need, who wants to give you a renewed mind and change your heart and transform your soul? What I hope that you will learn this morning is this, that the hope of Jesus Christ is not behavior modification. The ministry of this place, we are Jesus' ministry, so this ministry, we are not here to convince you or talk you into anything or try to change your mind on something. We're here to tell you that your hope is Jesus and that our goal is to point you to him. And once you surrender to him, once you believe in him, he goes about changing hearts and transforming minds and everything else flows from that. That's why the very first thing that I want you to know this morning is this, that there is indeed a battle for your mind. The New Testament authors were aware of this. They wrote about this all the time, right? And then Jesus spoke on our minds often. In fact, if, if you work through the New Testament, the Bible uh, uh, equates that, that the heart and mind and soul are all linked, right? That, that the inner man, what Jesus called the truest point of a person, the soul of a person, involves both our hearts and our minds. Because our hearts are what we love, it's what we adore, it's what we give ourselves to and cede control to. Our, our mind is how we perceive and see and think and make decisions. And so the soul contains both of those things, and that is where God wants to work. In fact, just one example to point this out to you. Jesus was once asked what the single greatest commandment in all of the law was. And you know what he answered? Matthew 22. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Do you see the importance that he elevates it there? It's the single greatest commandment. And then do you see how he linked them? Heart, soul, and mind, they're together. It's where he wants to work. And God knows better than we do that the state of our mind determines our conduct. The state of our mind determines our behavior. The state of our mind often determines our future. And in creating the human mind, God had a tremendous purpose in store for it. The greatest purpose of the human mind is to receive revelation from our creator. And as we get to know God, as we get to know more about him, as we get to know more about his ways and more about his creation and more about his design and his order and his will, our minds become more and more alive and more and more what they were created to be. And all that sounds really good. But there's just one major problem to all of this, and that is the effect that sin has on the human mind. So I want you, I want you just for a moment to think about this again. Paul is telling this church, what, you, what I insist on is that you do not return to your old way of living. He even pulls out the authority card, right? I insist, that's authority language. But then he equates their past conduct, their past way of life, 
he equates it to the futility of their old way of thinking. Now Romans chapter 1 is another place where Paul writes literally that phrase, futility in thinking. And Romans 1 goes in detail about the impact that sin has had on humanity. And sin's impact on us is deep and profound and bigger than we ever give credit to. Ephesians 2, which we'll refer to again a little later, tells us that in our sins we, we are spiritually dead and we are deserving of God's wrath. And that's, not, and that's bad enough, but it's not all sin does to us. Right? Sin causes us to make really bad decisions. Sin causes us to see things completely foolishly. It causes our hearts to desire things that are destructive and bad for us and hurt us and those around us. It causes our desires and our behavior to rebel against God's good design and order for creation. And when all that happens, Paul describes for us in Romans 1 what comes next. Romans 1, I'm going to throw this on the screens for you. It says this, Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God... So listen to this. So God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And then verse 32 is probably the most accurate description of America in 2019 I've ever heard. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do those very things, but also approve of those who practice them. You understand what that's saying? It's saying that in our sinful state, human beings reject God. We reject his love. We reject his authority, we reject his rule, we reject his design, we reject his order, and so eventually what he does is he just relents and gives us what we want. And in that, our, our mind becomes depraved, and in that depraved state, that sin leaves our minds is we don't even realize that the things we want are the things that are killing us. We see this in Ephesians 4 too. Look at verse 18, where Cindy read for you. Ephesians 4 verse 18 says this, that they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Now remember, this context is Paul is reminding this church of what they were like before they knew Christ. And again, his focus is not on their conduct, but on why they did what they did. And he says that the, why they did what they did is that they were darkened in their understanding. The phrase he used in Romans 1 was that their minds were depraved. And that in this darkened understanding, they were separated from, from the life that God designed for them. And the reason is this, that in this, this depraved mind, in this darkened understanding, what, what that always leads to is a hardened heart. And I'm here to tell you one of the most impenetrable forces in all of creation is a hardened heart. This is why the message of Jesus has been offensive to so many people, because the message of Jesus isn't offensive at all. I mean, think about it. The message is this, that all of humanity is, is together in that we have no hope, that we are lost in our sins, that we stand condemned before a holy God, and we deserve death and hell. But God, in his love for us, in his grace for us, in his mercy for us, sent Jesus Christ to take on our form and take on our shape, to live the life that we could not live, to die on a cross, to pay my price, to, to then defeat death, to offer me eternal life and forgiveness for free if I just believe in him. How in the world could that be offensive but to a darkened mind and a hardened heart any questioning of their own deity or decisions is offensive any statement that they would need 
saving is offensive. Any recognition of an authority other than them is offensive. Which is why I stand before you this morning absolutely convinced what, what non-believers in Jesus don't need are our pickets and our shouting and our confrontations and our debates. They need our love. They need our prayers. They need our example. Man, if we can just model for them the joy that comes with knowing Jesus, if we can model for them the fulfillment that comes with lining up under his authority and we can pray for God's spirit to break into their mind and heart and renew it, we will see far more people come to a belief in Jesus Christ in this place than we will by engaging them in angry discourse. It's wasting our time when we do that. Because when we appeal to Jesus' power to do this, we're appealing to what he wants to do. The book of Ezekiel, God says that I will remove your heart of stone and give you a new heart of flesh. In Romans 12, we are told that God's design and intentions are to transform our minds. 2 Corinthians 5 says that he will make us entirely new creations in Jesus. What I'm telling you, and even more importantly, what I'm praying for you all today is this, that who you give control of your mind to makes all the difference in the world. Because the second truth that we see here from Ephesians 4 is that a depraved mind has very real consequences. Look at verse 19. Paul writes, having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. And they're full of greed. Listen, man, a mind that is depraved by sin leads to a hardening of your heart and this always leads to a loss of sensitivity. What this means is that we can no longer see sin for what it really is. Things that should be clear, things that should be undeniable and not even arguable are now treated as if they're complicated or unclear. Truth is no longer able to break through. Love, the love of Christ doesn't penetrate because of the walls that we erect to protect ourselves. And the greatest tragedy is this, to miss out on Jesus is to miss out on everything. If you miss out on Jesus Christ, you've missed out on your purpose for existing. If you miss out on Jesus, you've missed out on your design for life. You've missed out on who deserves to be the object of your worship and adoration. To miss out on Jesus is to miss out on life itself. And when our minds are depraved and when our hearts are hardened, when our sensitivity is lost, what inevitably comes next is that we begin missing out on Jesus. Third thing is that apart from the mind of Christ, we become by our very nature consumed by indulgence. You understand that's what Romans 1 said, right? That's what verse 19 says just told us in Ephesians 4. And it's what chapter 2 said. If you have your Bibles, flip one page back to Ephesians chapter 2. This is a little bit of a recap, but remember, this is how chapter 2 starts. He's again talking to the Gentiles about how they were before they knew Jesus. And he says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And then listen to verse 3 of chapter 2. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest we were by nature deserving of wrath. Listen, without the hope of Jesus Christ, without the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, what is left is consumption. What's left is making our desires our God and making the fulfillment of those desires the chief, the single chief aim of our existence, right? And, and the results of this way of life on our world are devastating. 
Right? We have more and more and more oppression. We have more and more slavery and human trafficking. We have more and more pornography and divorce and absentee parents. More and more aborted babies and systemic racism and abuse of power. Countless deaths way too soon. More and more this is happening. And all this is what comes from heralding the indulgence of desires as our number one aim. All this comes from putting me first in every situation. Without the mind of Christ, what we're left with is a mind that is bent to that very way of life. Me first in all things. Let me ask you, why? Why do you think the biggest pushbacks against Jesus is not against his story and not against his deity and not against his gospel, but it's always some moral stance? Or we reject Jesus because of something the Bible has to say about self-control or money or sexuality or greed or has the audacity to say that, no, we can't do whatever we want with our bodies. And the reason these are always the objections is because without Jesus, we stand no chance. Those ideas, those passions, they become our God. We are trapped by them. Listen, I know, right? I know you came in on a beautiful Sunday morning and so far this has been really pretty bleak. I feel the need to point out right now, just for my own self-preservation, that I didn't write the Bible. I'm just telling you what it says. But I think this morning, right, I think it would be really good for us to wrestle with what we should do with this information, no matter how hard it is to swallow. Because honestly, the answer to the question of what what do we do do with what Paul tells us here in Ephesians 4 will change based on what I would call your spiritual condition when you walked in today. If you are here today and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that you have believed in him, surrendered your life to him, there are some specific ways that I think you should respond to these truths. But if you're here this morning and you're not yet, you're just kind of checking things out, you've never actually believed in him or or gone all in, then there's some specific things that I'm going to ask you to do today in response to these truths as well. But I'm going to start with the followers of Jesus. What do we do with this? Well, number one, we need to let this truth build our compassion and not our pride. There's this incredible statement in 1 Corinthians 2. We're going to throw this on the screens for you. Where Paul is, is asking this, this rhetorical question, and then he has a statement at the end of this verse. He says, for who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Obviously, no one. But then listen to what he says. But we have the mind of Christ. You understand how powerful that is? That when you receive Jesus Christ as Lord, not only are your sins forgiven, not only are you granted eternal life in heaven, not only does the Holy Spirit take up residence in your heart, but you are also granted the mind of Christ. This is your only hope in this battle for your mind. It's the only thing that allows you to see things in the right light. It's the only thing that allows you to have a chance against your sinful nature. Everybody here who can remember what it was like when they first became a Christian can tell you a very similar story. They can tell you about how there was a sin in their life that was consistent and habitual that they didn't even know was wrong. And after they believed in Jesus, he revealed it to them for what it was and he helped them overcome it. That's the mind of Christ. Now listen, that's a remarkable gift, but there's one of two ways that we can go from there. We can take this gift, and it's a gift, by the way. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. It's all grace. It's a gift. We can take this gift and we become incredibly prideful by forming some us versus them mentality, by beginning to think that, that we are the answer, that we are somehow better or superior, that we possess wisdom. Listen to me, wisdom belongs to Jesus, not you, it's his. And so to take this wondrous gift of God and make it about us is a tragic, harmful waste that will actively keep people from coming to Jesus. And I don't think you want to stand before the Lord one day and answer for that. Or we can think about ourselves rightly. 
And we can recognize that we would still be stuck in the futility of our own thinking if it wasn't for the grace of God. And we can recognize that even though we have the mind of Christ, we very much still have our sinful nature. And so we, every one of us, is far from perfect. And we are not the answer, nor would we ever be. And we are not better than anyone, nor will we ever be. And so our compassion for those who do not yet know Jesus should grow by leaps and bounds. Our mercy and grace and understanding to them should grow by leaps and bounds. We should want for them what we have found to be true, that Jesus Christ is the greatest prize in all creation, that we didn't know what freedom was until we learned what prison meant and that there's a way of life and there's a calling that is so much greater and so much more fulfilling than just simply chasing your desires. And how, how would it ever be right to discover all of that and then somehow think that you're the answer? No, man, you've, you've been given an endless stream of water in the midst of a desert. Pass it on. Pass it on. Second thing we're commanded to as followers of Jesus to do is take every thought captive. There's this verse in 2 Corinthians 10 I really don't like. I'm going to share it with you today so you cannot like it either, all right? 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 says this, that we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And listen to this part. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Do you know how hard that is? That's incredibly hard. But man, is it necessary for you to get in the fight. We have to be aware of this sort of dual nature that we have, that we have both the mind of Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit and our sinful nature. It's why Romans 7, who is written by Paul, by the way, the guy who's writing all these brilliant things about having the mind of Christ and and not living this way. You know what he says in Romans 7? He says, all the things that I don't want to do, I keep doing. And all the things that I do want to do, those are the things that I struggle to do. And every follower of Jesus said, amen. Because we can all relate with that. And so for the follower of Jesus, the focus of our efforts and prayers should not be on our behavior. Instead, we need to go to war on behalf of our hearts, on behalf of our minds, on behalf of our soul, and invite God's presence and work into places that make a real difference. Because that's where freedom comes from. Let me ask you this. Men, for, for the rest of your days... Do you want to fight and claw and resist the urge to look lustfully at other people? Or do you not want to have the urge anymore? Do you, want to, do you want to cut up all your credit cards and literally bolt your wallet shut to not just go out and foolishly buy the latest thing? Or do you want to actually feel real joy and contentment with the things the Lord has given you? Do you see the difference there? One's freedom, one's an ongoing struggle. Our prayers should sound more and more like this. Change my heart, Lord. Help me to see things the way that you see them. Help me to see people the way that you see them. Take every one of my thoughts and make them captive to the rule of Jesus Christ and change my desires and overcome more and more of my sinful nature so I can look more and more like you. The third encouragement I can give you this morning is this. Do not ever give in. Ever. You understand just by these verses that are in here, just by Paul insisting on and warning against it tells us the very real possibility that followers of Jesus can absolutely slide back into this way of thinking and this way of living. You've got that option. 
And, and the very nature of this never-ending struggle can be overwhelming and wearying. The push of our own bodies and our own desires to rebel against God's design can feel relentless. It's why so much of following Jesus on this sin-stained earth with these sin-stained bodies is just absolutely a daily grind. And yet I want you to see Paul's heart here. He is insistent. Verse 17, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. There's no giving it. You must no longer live as you did. Look at verse 20. Here's what he says. Because that is not the way of life that you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him with accordance with the truth is in Jesus. The reason he insists on it, because that's simply not the way of Jesus. It's not the way of life in him that you learned. And so to give up in this fight, to give into it, to to return to it, that's simply not for you anymore. And I cannot tell you anymore. I cannot strongly encourage you anymore. Don't give into it. Because, man, there's no shortage of voices today. We read in Romans 1 earlier that, that not only will human beings continue to do things that God has forbidden, but they will encourage others to do as well. And man, you don't have to go very far to find those voices today, do you? Turn on television, log on the internet, you'll hear them without even looking. Voices telling you just give in to your sinful nature. Voices telling you the word of God is, is old-fashioned, it's irrelevant, doesn't apply to today. Voices telling you that somehow culture is the authority that should dictate morality. Voices telling you that you need to be who you think you are. You need to do what makes you happy. You need to chase your desires above all else. You need to speak your truth. And you must understand only Jesus Christ knows who you are. He knows you better than you know yourself. And, and the wondrous thing about him is he not only sees you just as you are sitting here this morning, this instant, he sees who you will become in him by his loving grace and influence. And you will never, ever be who you really are. You will never, ever discover your truest self by living in disobedience to him. It will not happen. And so you must fight with everything that is in you, the sinful urges that you have the best you can, and then repent when you fail. Guess what? You will fail. But when you do repent and plead for forgiveness and then receive it by his mercy and his love and his grace and then get back in the fight. Pray for your soul. Pray for God to transform you and change you from the inside out. But never, ever settle for your sin. Never, ever give in to it because there's only death and destruction and harm in that. Now, to those who don't yet know Christ this morning, there's two more things I want you to consider. And the first is this. Do not miss out on Jesus because of some lesser objection. Man, there, there may be something moral that the Bible teaches that you disagree with. There may be something that I talked about today that offended you. In fact, that's probably likely. But listen to me, don't miss out on Jesus Christ because of some lesser objection. We are talking about eternal life. Eternity is on the line here. And only Jesus Christ came for you. And only Jesus Christ died on the cross for the payment of your sins. And only Jesus Christ defeated death by walking out of his grave. And only Jesus Christ can save you from hell and bring you to eternal life in heaven. And so to reject him over some minor, lesser, moral disagreement with his word would be foolishly tragic. That'd be like you refusing $10 million from me this morning because you wanted a cashier's check and not in ones and fives. At that point, just take the stupid money and figure it out, right? Because you need to know that our overarching aim around here is not changing your mind. We don't need you to agree with us on everything. What we're going to do is we're going to speak the truth of God's word to God's people, command them the things that God has commanded them, and we'll never stop. But if you don't know Jesus, I can tell you this morning what we don't want for you. 
I don't want you to intellectually agree with some moral teaching from the Bible and then go about trying to line up with it without ever fully surrendering to him because that's, that's a recipe for failure. We want to point you to him first and foremost. And man, from there, what I know is that Jesus is so much better at changing hearts and minds than we are. So if you're here and you're, you're not re- yet ready to believe in Jesus, you're still just sort of checking this out and you, you've got some, some angst, you've got some questions, there's two things I want you to consider this morning. Number one, stop focusing on what you don't like about what the Bible says. And number two, just pray this. Ask Jesus that if he's real and he's everything that we say he is, ask him to reveal himself to you. And he will do so. And when you surrender to who he really is, everything else will fall into place once you know him. Now, if you're here and you've been pondering this for a while, and I have a feeling there's some people here today who are in this, who are in this category, that you've been researching this stuff for a while, you've been checking out Jesus for a few weeks or a few months, and God has brought you to this point this morning, and the call for you is simple. Free your mind by surrendering it to Jesus. It was this really awesome story in John chapter 11 where Jesus walks up to a grave of a man named Lazarus. And Lazarus has been dead for four days. He's, he's in the grave. He's in the tomb. And Jesus tells him to roll the stone away. And he does something that nobody saw coming. He says, hey, Lazarus, why don't you get up and come out of there? And, and John 11 tells us that Lazarus comes stumbling out because he's still wrapped in all of his grave clothes. And Jesus tells him, get the grave clothes off that man because he's not dead anymore. He's now alive. And as amazing as that story is, what's more amazing to me this morning, what gives me so much more hope this morning, is that Jesus has never stopped doing it since. That there are countless souls who were dead in their sins, deserving of wrath, and have been called out of the grave by the love and grace of Jesus. There are countless minds who were depraved by sin that have been transformed by his power in gospel. There are countless hearts that were hardened in resistance that have been softened by his mercy. This is what Jesus does, and he never stops. And so wherever you will find him, and it's everywhere, you will find him at work, and he will be freeing minds from their depravity. He'll be speaking life where there is death. He will be illuminating where there is darkness. He'll be setting prisoners free. He'll be healing wounds that have long existed, bringing purpose where there is none, and extending grace when there is law and justice. And only he can do this. Because only he lived the perfect life and only he, his death can defeat the power of sin in the grave and only he walked out of his own grave by his own power and only his life brings victory for all eternity and can never be defeated. And if you are here this morning and you've never taken the step of surrendering your life to him, I need you to know how you sit before God this morning. As you're sitting, you sit as a sinner who deserves death in hell and that is the path that you are on. Now listen, that doesn't make you any worse than all of us. It makes you exactly like all of us. But what I need you to know this morning is that Jesus Christ loved you far too much to leave you in that state. He suffered immensely and brutally and died on your behalf to offer you grace, to offer you forgiveness, to offer you eternal life and to save you from that. Will you surrender your life to his rule today? Will you cross the bridge from death to life by believing in him and asking him to forgive you? I'm going to ask everybody to bow their heads and close their eyes. I didn't have this prepared. I just, I just have a feeling this morning that somebody, at least one person, needs to declare this this morning. If you're here today and, and you could say honestly that you've never, ever placed your faith in Jesus Christ, 
and you're ready today to pass from death to life, you're ready today to pass from, 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 from wrath to love, to pass from directionless to purpose, purpose to pass from, from hell to heaven, literally. And you're ready today to believe in Jesus Christ. Will you just slip your hand up for me so I can see it and pray for you? Thank you. We've, we've got a prayer team, and we're going to sing a song, and, and they're going to go out, um, out back. And any of you who raised your hand, I'm going to invite you just to go back there, and they'll walk you through in the Bible and show you how you can pray this prayer. But for the rest of us, I'm going to close this time in prayer, and then, and then we'll have some time to spend with the Lord. So let's pray. God, we thank you for the power and grace of your gospel. We thank you for uh, the love that, that, that you displayed for us on the cross. And, and, and God, that the truth is, that sin's effect on our minds and our hearts is so profound and so deep that it's not a single word that I could ever say to convince somebody. There's no power in and of myself for this place that we could ever point someone to the truth of Jesus and have them accepted. But Lord, we know that Jesus does this. We know that his spirit draws us, convicts us, that his spirit is even broken through in the lives of some people in this room today, telling them they need him and they need his saving. So, Lord, we pray for them that they'll, they'll have the audacity, they'll have the boldness to get up when we sing and go to the back and, and find the prayer room and, and, just, and just work with that team and help them to understand exactly what decision they're making today. And God, for the rest of us, will we, will we take a good, hard look at our lives and, and, and hear the words of Paul that he insists that we do not return to old way of living? God, we are so capable of sliding back in to being controlled by our indulgences. We're so capable of sliding back into being ruled by the power of the sin in our lives. Lord, would you free us from that? Would you, would you humble us, have us repent before you this morning and return to the power and grace of Jesus? And we ask this in his powerful name. Amen. Our prayer team is standing in that back corner right there. Um, if, you, if you want them to pray with you and lead you through this, I invite you to, as soon as we stand to sing, go back there and go be with them. Um, for the rest of you, we're going to give you a couple minutes now just to, just to pray uh, between just you and the Lord and wrestle with some things that he might have been putting on your heart today. We have some guidance on the screens for you. Uh, you take care of this with him before we sing.